When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. He kōna e pūrangi tēnei nā te reo irirangi o Aotearoa. It was a spirit of adventure that took teacher Tony Washington and his family to Pitcairn Island, where they lived from December 1990 to 1992. There was no other passengers on it. It was just a container ship going past, and they agreed to take us there. I'm Sonia Yee, and you're listening to Eyewitness, an RNZ podcast that looks at events and moments from the past witnessed by the people who were there. In the early 2000s, Pitcairn captured international headlines with allegations of sexual abuse and assault on young children and women on the island. And we'll get to that painful side of the story that was to rear its head about a decade after Washington and his family set out for what they thought would be a kind of idyllic Swiss Family Robinson-type experience. But first... One of the most isolated communities in the world, Pitcairn is just over 5,500 kilometres from Christchurch. Now, aerial views of the island reveal a lush landscape surrounded by pristine, deep blue ocean. It's a British protectorate. It's administered from Wellington in Auckland. When Tony was offered the opportunity to live and work on Pitcairn, it was one he couldn't resist. I knew I was going to be busy as education officer and government advisor. We only knew really that we were going to an isolated Pacific Islands. My wife didn't think it was so good an opportunity to take at the start, but the children didn't very often get very sick, so we thought we'd go and take the opportunity to go there. And we saw the um, home videos of the previous education officer were zooming around on a rubber duck and having a great ball of fun and cricket matches where they played cricket and volleyball. Enlightened us quite a bit, but really didn't give us the whole picture. But heading to a remote destination for two years is a pretty big deal. What do you pack and where do you even begin? Because on Pitcairn, accessing basic groceries isn't quite as simple as going to the supermarket. Well, we actually had to order our groceries. The order was $5,000. All the basics, really. Meat was New Zealand's export quality meat. We had 144 one-litre packets of long-life milk. We had boxes of spaghetti and sausages and spaghetti and... Cheese and that you couldn't buy over there, of course, is the only one little shop. We took over some tea chests that we put all our stuff in, and we had about four of those, and that was all. The family packed up their lives, and then they set sail on a freight ship. Anyway, it took us seven days. We got very seasick, and the boat sort of rolled forwards and rolled sideways at the same time. Had <laughs> three days of feeling really miserable. There's no bed for me. I had to go and sleep up in the pilot's room next to the uh, bridge. And all I got was the smell of um, curry wafting up the stairs. There was no other passengers on it. It was just a container ship going past. And they agreed to take us there. When we got on board the ship, my wife took a look over the side and said, Crikey, she's the only one they reckon who's been to Pitkin and gone down the ladder with their eyes shut. And when they finally reached their destination... The whole island was there to greet Tony and his wife, their two daughters and four-year-old son. Most of the people were back at the, at the landing trying to sort out the boxes and get them unloaded. And The people made us feel very welcome. 
Today, Pitcairn has a population of around 50. But back when Tony and his family went there, there were a whopping... 65. That included my family of five and the pastor's family of five. And to this day, there are only four family names on Pitcairn. Browns, Christians, Youngs and Warrings. And I can only imagine that when the community is so tight-knit and everyone's sort of related, it must be pretty hard to break into a small circle and get to know everyone. Well, to start with, I had some difficulty with their language because they had it frigid English. I go in Nabi, it means I'm going swimming. I had trouble when I went to the first council meeting and I had to get to one of the island people and say, what was that meeting all about? But they sort of respected me, I think, a bit after that, and then they spoke in English most of the time. They were a bit standoffish at first, but then they knew I was there to do a job. One family took us in, mostly he showed us how to craft and how to make the um, sharks and how to put the teeth in, and, and we had lots of pitkin meals there. The way the island was settled is kind of interesting. The story goes that there were nine men, the most wanted men in the British Empire. They were led by acting Lieutenant Fletcher Christian and had become a fugitive after the takeover of the HMS Bounty. He didn't kill the captain in charge, but set him adrift in a lifeboat along with 18 others. They came across Pitcairn, sank the boat, making sure that no one could leave the island. And so the Pitcairn Island community was born. When they burnt their boat, there was no evidence that they were there and the place hadn't been found anyway. On Pitcairn, they were untouchable. And like any community, there are dates that are celebrated. For Pitcairners, it's a sinking of the ship their forebears had arrived on. They call it Bounty Day on the 23rd of January. And they make up a raft of 44-gallon uh, drums and pandanus leaves, which burn easy, and bits of card and cardboard and stuff in it, and light it up and send it out into the bay. And it gradually pulls to bits and sort of sinks. And they do that in the evening. In daytime, they spend their time um, fishing and doing their craft, sitting down on the landing. It was interesting because the kids swim in there. It's the only place they had to swim in. It was really quite rocky. Jetty's only about 30 metres long. They were catching sharks, take the jaw out of them, boil them up, and it goes like jelly. And you get the teeth out of that. They're only little teeth. They use them in their shark carvings. They laughed at me when I just told them I was putting in a vegetable garden because it's really hot and humid up there and uh, I brought all seeds from New Zealand and planted tomatoes which were really grew really well, lettuces, cabbages and all those kind of things. But planting a garden wasn't as easy as you'd think. Much like everything else on Pitcairn, it required work. In this case, a bulldozer. They just bulldozed the bush around the back of the school and pushed it up into a heap and then had a spare patch... It cost me a dollar twenty because it was sixty cents to hire the bulldozer and sixty cents to pay the the driver. They had a watermelon patch and a strawberry patch and kumara patch. It was interesting. They have lots of public dinners over there, but everyone takes along a plate and shares it. Life on Pitcairn was pretty simple. The landscape is steep at one end and has a flat land in the middle. The houses were like a band that went from the landing up to the first houses at the top of the hill. Which Tony calls... The Hill of Misery. And that's because it was such a mission to walk up and down. And they went round half a mile. As for the weather, it was hot and humid, with high rainfalls throughout the year. It definitely affected the lifestyle. Everyone wore T-shirts and shorts. And let's just say, shoes? Well, they were surplus to requirements. 
people are going to be under their bare feet because the ground's so muddy. And it sort of oozes between your toes. And shoes aren't very um, practical at all. And it's quick drying, actually. The volcanic soil, and it's red. It doesn't take long to dry up. And while Tony's family had a flushing toilet and pretty much lived in a house attached to the school, everything in their new life was just that little bit harder. The younger ones got rather upset about the rats running around in the roof all the time. And people had to walk or drive up to come to see us. It was quite good being at the end of the line, except when the generators were on, because the generators supplied us with the power. Turn the generators on at five o'clock, and people would turn their washing machines on, and power would start to fade by the time it got up to school, and turn on the kettle, and the whole system would die. I imagine it's a schoolhouse. Is there only one building for the school? No, there's two. There is a schoolhouse. When we went to shut the door one day, this whole door frame collapsed. It was just riddled with termites. Tony was teaching kids from the ages of 5 to 15 and was supervising about four high school students who were doing school certificate, which today is about the equivalent of NCEA Level 1. They asked me questions if they needed to. I had a girl that wanted to be a pharmacist. The other one just wanted to stay on Pitkin. Most of them have been up to Knott's Perry Farm and up the eastern, western American seaboard, and if you tried to talk to them about something like a round, a round of golf, a merry-go-round, a roundabout, they have no idea what, what a roundabout looked like. Tony will be the first to tell you that while there aren't a lot of people on the island, there's always something to do. Having two roles, again as the education officer and the government advisor, smaller jobs also kept him pretty busy. Tony saw a need for a museum on the island, so he decided to start one. It seemed to me that history was being sold and were taken away by other people who came to the island. What's actually in it? I know some of the things, lots of um, stone edges and bits of obsidian that they've used for um, cutting, um, little bits and pieces that people have sent back to is from the bounty, like a bounty cannonball. Yeah, they've got a cannon there as well. In my mind, I'm thinking cannonballs are the size of a bowling ball, but not these ones. Bigger than an orange. About the size of a shot foot that athletes throw around. Stone edges and obsidian that they've used for um, cutting. I understand they've got a really good museum now. So Tony liked to keep as busy as possible. It kind of connected him to the way of life on the island too, though. He also got involved in the local newsletter. It had subscribers from all over the world. And it cost about $5 for a year's subscription. That was written in four pages of Foscape every month. It was called... Miscellany or miscellany. And they were sent out to um, places like Germany, England, America like crazy, Scotland, Australia. People were subscribed to this newsletter because it's a romantic look about Pitkin that people kind of fall for. Mail only came seven times a year. So the wait was long. We had three airdrops and some of the mail was dropped in you know, post office bags and it was stones together the weight in, in a parachute. As for locals, well, they relied on trading with passing ships. And get this, real-life pirates. And they would um, do whatever they could to get the ship to stop so they could go out and trade. Pitcairners would hop in a longboat and make their way to the ship to trade, wearing torn-off shorts, ripped T-shirts and bare feet. They also carried... knives. Which Tony reckons was purely for appearance. So apart from these passing ships, no one else really ever came to Pitcairn, unless they were heading to work there. But there were rules if you wanted to go. 
Tony says there were some who felt like they'd been lured over with promises that weren't fulfilled. It's no romance about Pitcairn. The romance comes more from the um, outsiders looking in. And it's hard work getting through and surviving and getting your food and getting yourself accepted by the people so that you are included and made to feel welcome. One or two of the people come here, they had to come for six months, and after a couple of months they were finding it rather hard, and they tended to end up at our place where they could talk to us about things that they wanted to talk about. The fact that they had to spend so much money to get here and it didn't turn out quite how they expected. The accommodation was pretty minimal, really. There's no hotels or motels or anything like that there. You had to have $20,000 or thereabouts in the bank. American dollars is the most important, followed by Australian dollars. New Zealand dollars at the bottom of the pile. And that money was for safekeeping. Like if you had to get off the island in a hurry, it was a fee for the ship to stop by and take you to get medical help. And that's what happened to Tony's wife. My wife got sick. A kidney stone was eight millimetres in size. And she was in a lot of pain. Luckily, there was a passing ship that was taking refugees to Australia. They took her to New Zealand in six days. And, um, and she was back on the island within six weeks. The Washington family travelled to Pitcairn in December and within a year they discovered other traditions and practices on the island. Christmas, as it turned out, was a big community event. As with Western tradition, gifts were exchanged. Everybody gave everybody something on the island. The men went round and cut the presents off the trees and called out their names, so it's felt like a fish market. They're all yelling out, Tony, Tony. Steve, Steve. And you had to go and get your presents. Over the course of the year on Pitcairn, Tony got to work with some leather he'd had sent from New Zealand. The locals were pretty stoked. I made 23 leather belts. We gave them to all the men and we made big chopping boards for the women and that's how we took care of giving everybody a present. You took them home and then you opened them at home. Surprised me a little bit, really. And let's not forget the rules. Whether they were spoken or unspoken, some were more explicit than others. And it all depended on who was interpreting them. It says in the law book you should not use offensive language. That F word, every five words of some people there. <laughs> I don't know what offensive language is, it wasn't that. One of the rules was no alcohol. And it was my job to report to the commissioner. I had a secret code book so I could end code messages. And he would send them back to the radio station in code. Consequently, the people didn't show me their alcohol but they did bring it ashore. Why was there no alcohol allowed? I think it was because it was unsafe. One big road that goes from the landing down to the out to the schoolhouse and two that went over the hill to different parts of the island. It was easy to have an accident. And in the law book it said you had to give way to wheelbarrows coming downhill. Oh, right, so they were the dangerous thing rather than cars. Yes, the big six-foot-long wheelbarrows full of um, firewood or something like that. It would be a bit tricky. And Tony... Well, he was an exception to that role. When I went there, the commissioner wrote me out a pass and said, you'll need one of these. And when the governor came over, he had to have a special pass as well. So he'd have a drink at tea time. Life on Pitcairn was quiet. Up until allegations of sexual abuse on women and young children had been made public in 1999. And the first story with Pitcairn Islanders speaking about it was published in 2002. The information that emerged is that the abuse had been historic. The allegations involved seven men who together faced 55 charges, and today, as a result of the trial, children under 16 are no longer permitted to visit Pitcairn. 
Now, six of the seven men charged were found guilty and had their appeals denied. One of the men involved in the scandal was Steve Christian, Pitcairn's mayor. The mayor was, he was duly elected by the people. Yeah, he was the bulldozer driver, he was um, the island magistrate. He was fine as far as decisions around the place being made. So he was the one that showed me how to do craft and stuff. So. You didn't feel like people felt threatened by him in any way? I don't think so. Tony and his family were none the wiser, although there was an inkling that something was always a bit off. I remember a couple of signs that said that something was going on. And one of the Pitkin girls took my two daughters, who were then 12 and 10, up to the flatland, and they weren't gone very long, about half an hour, and then they came back on their own. And they wouldn't tell me what was wrong. They assumed something was. And to this day, I still don't know what was wrong. One of the um, girls who was 14 years old was given a model of a letter as a symbol of you know, getting her freedom, I think. It was the fellow who made the letter. It was an imitation one. It was just a symbol of climbing the letter and getting out to window. <laughs> I, there was one particularly nice-looking young girl whose family came from part of that side that was in trouble with the law. Uh, I almost felt like I had to protect her with the other kids to see that she was safe. And she was still safe when I left, but I don't know what happened after that. Safe from what? Safe from the um, having a reputation. The jokes and comments that people used to make sometimes were quite pointed. The defence argument was that this had been happening, you know, for generations. A girl from the age of 10 was basically able to be sexually active and it was just socially acceptable. Had you known that that was the case, do you think you would have taken your family? No, I, I think they tried to target my daughters, particularly one or two fellas, and I think we meant to fend them off quite nicely. I felt like they were going to push it a bit further one day. We could see some pressure going on, especially at their younger daughter. It was in the public dinners and stuff like that. Now, people who are 16, 18, 25. Did they try and kind of get inside your family or become close friends with you? Yes, they did. It was a bit scary when we were looking at it at the time. By the time the news of the historic abuse on the island hit the media headlines around the world, Tony and his family were already safely back in New Zealand. Yes, we actually had interviews with the Kent police we came out from England to interview a, a number of people, including my wife, my children and, and myself. Because I was the government advisor and the government auditor and the government and education officer, they made sure I didn't know anything. I think they had it as part of their plan. Tony started this story by saying that it was a spirit of adventure that took him and his family there in the first place. Looking back, was it the adventure he expected? Well, we definitely had an adventure. And it was really strange, though, because I sold my motorbike to one of the locals and I took it out the night before. We were due to leave in the morning. He offered to give me a ride back down to where we were staying at the edge. And I said, no, I'd walk. And I walked along the road and I thought, I'll never, ever walk this road again. It was something I knew was never going to happen again. There's no way we could get back to Pitcairn without having to have the support of the governor and $10,000 for us. So it felt like it was a dream that you had and nothing else. The Washingtons saw out their two-year stint on Pitkin Island and never really looked back. He said his family don't really talk about it much. When we left, they took one long boat out and they did their traditional In the Sweet By and By, which is a song they sing all the time when people are leaving. And they sang it from the long boat 
to us and standing at the rail. It was pretty good because I knew, I knew I'd done my job and I knew I had you know, gained some experience and learned lots of things about our family, self-sufficiency and accepting what you had. You're listening to Eyewitness, and that was Tony Washington. And I'm your host and producer, Sonia Yee. If you'd like to listen to more of the series, head to rnz.co.nz forward slash eyewitness or download it via Spotify, Apple, iHeartRadio or wherever you get your podcasts. Catch you next time. Head over to Hulu this March where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the award-winning movie, Poor Things, starring Emma Stone, Mark Ruffalo, and Willem Dafoe. Check out the new documentary, Freaknik, The Wildest Party Never Told, about the iconic Atlanta street party. And don't miss FX's Shogun, a reimagining of the epic tale starring Anna Sawai. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu.